Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Dave Jackson, former National Hockey League referee and current rules analyst with ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports broadcasting. What started out as a way to earn some pocket money as a 14-year-old at Point Claire Arena in Montreal led to Dave officiating more than 1,500 games in the NHL over his 30-year career. He skated an estimated 12,000 kilometers during his career, which is the equivalent of skating from Toronto to our favorite March break destination of Florida three times round trip. Let that sink in for a moment. Dave's refereeing highlights include two All-Star games, an outdoor stadium game, and representing the NHL as an official at the 2014 Winter Olympic Games in Sochi, Russia, which, by the way, Canada won gold at by defeating Sweden 3-0. Welcome, Dave Jackson, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, thanks for having me. It's a beautiful sunny morning here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, a couple hours behind you, but, uh, you know, I just, I feel uh, uh, very fortunate to be on a Legends podcast. Uh, I seldom, uh, other than making jokes, I've been seldom referred to as a legend, so. Uh, <laughs> well, you nice are to, one. It's nice to have we, somebody call me one. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, and we got some great stories we're looking forward to hearing. Help us with our geography. You are in uh, Colorado. Are you near Denver? Help us pinpoint where you are. Sure, I'm about 20 miles south of Denver, a place called Highlands Ranch, and it is straight down. I mean, you just get on Broadway and you get on Broadway downtown and take it to it won't go any further than that. I'll wave to you. <laughs> How do you like Colorado? How long have you lived there? I've been here, uh, it's going on nine years, and uh, I tell you what, uh, people think Colorado is some winter wonderland and cold all the time. I tell you what, the mountains get about 30 feet of snow. We're just on the other side of the continental divide and weather here, we're a high desert plain. People don't realize that. And uh, we get 300 days of sunshine. There's no humidity, no mosquitoes, no bugs. Uh, we get a lot of rattlesnakes and coyotes, things like that. <laughs> but uh, our winters are just amazing. It, we might, uh, in Denver, we, we might get two or three snowfalls and it's gone in two or three days. In fact, they don't close the golf courses. They keep wow. Some of the private courses a little further down south close, but uh, the public courses around here, they just keep the flag stick in and, you know, uh, they close uh, for a day or two when it snows. And then three or four days later, people back out in T-shirts and shorts in the middle of January. Well, I've always heard great things about Colorado. I keep hearing them. You're emphasizing them. How'd you end up down there about nine years ago? Well, I, I got remarried when, uh, after a divorce. My kids were young. And uh, my wife was from California, and uh, I just said, there's no way I'm going to, I'd love to live in California, who wouldn't, but uh, I've got a bunch of young kids, so um, she agreed to move to Montreal, and uh, we lived in Montreal, and, and then in Vermont as well, but on the East Coast, so I could be near my children, and then the deal was, when they went to college, we would go back to uh, California, Well, my boys ended up going to college, and... Uh, her family decided to move from California to Colorado, so that's that's where we ended up. Perfect, all works out. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, I enjoy it here. I mean, I miss you know family and friends back in the East Coast, but um, just the the weather and everything else going with it, the scenery. I mean, you never get tired of looking at the mountains. It's just different view every day. I'm jealous. Let's go all the way back and get the Dave Jackson story. Where were you born? And tell us about your upbringing. Born in Montreal, 
went to, you know, I lived in Montreal most of my, I'd say most of my life. And even, even when I was in uh, Vermont the last uh, nine years before I moved to Colorado, I always kept a second home in Montreal because that's my, you know, that's where my base is. That's where everything I've done in my life, uh, minor hockey, uh, minor sports, went to college in Montreal, I, you know, elementary school, high school. Um, I've got hundreds and still hundreds of friends there that I keep in touch with. Uh, the, the, the cool thing about being retired is when you're on staff as a referee, it actually says in our contract that uh, they want you to avoid social media, things like Twitter and Facebook. And I, and I see why now, now that I'm sort of in media and I see how soul crushing some of the uh, ex- so-called experts can be uh, yeah. towards officials. And I understand now why uh, they don't they don't want you on social media. But the great thing for me now is, I mean, I've reconnected with so many friends that I went to college with, went to high school with, and um, stay in touch with them. So it's been really neat sort of uh, experiencing the whole social media later in life. But um, yeah, growing up in Montreal was fantastic. I was fortunate enough to learn a second language. And I uh, my French is, although my accent's not very good, uh, my daughter laughs at me, but uh, conversationally, I can certainly get by. And I feel that's an added bonus to know a second language. Um, Did you have siblings you know, growing up? And what did your parents do? My, uh, my dad worked, uh, he was an administrator at uh, McGill College. And uh, my mom was a, started off working for a notary, and then she ended up working for the uh, local church as their secretary for about 25 years. Uh, I have one sister. She now lives in Toronto. She's a, a health uh, fitness instructor. Um, but uh, growing up in Montreal, I grew up in the late '60s, early '70s, and the Montreal Canadiens were the, you know, the team to beat almost every year. And uh, everybody, you know, everybody grew up wearing a Montreal Canadiens jersey and wanting to play in the NHL for the Montreal Canadiens. And uh, I had that dream till about 16, and realized there was not a chance I was ever going to play pro. Uh, but I had started refereeing and did it uh, concurrently just, you know, to make some pocket money. I hated getting up early to, to uh, deliver the Montreal Gazette. That was a morning paper at the time. And uh, so I went and started refereeing. It's amazing when you take a stick out of somebody's hand and they have to just skate, uh, how much your skating improves and how much you learn about the game. Uh, you uh, Little things that you realize that you might miss or might not see and players get irritated about it. But it uh, really gives you a feel for when you're playing. It helps. It helps you become a better player, and playing helps you become a better referee. And I just, I just did that until, you know, obviously until I finished playing midget hockey, and realized that uh, I could languish in maybe junior B hockey or something. But I was never going to go very far. And uh, the powers that be saw me referee and asked me if I'd be interested in doing uh, travel hockey and getting into inner city hockey. I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, I was 17 at the time, and the NHL hired me on at 21. So four years later, I was doing the American League and the IHL and working for the NHL. Not doing NHL games, but working for them, and they signed me to a full-time contract in 89. Well, let's go back a little, Dave, if we can. As you know, you were a defenseman in the West Island Minor Hockey Association in the western suburbs of Montreal, and you played for your high school team at Lindsay Place. You got into refereeing. Do you still remember your first game as a 14-year-old at the Point Claire Arena? <laughs> yeah, I do. That that'll be forever etched on my uh, uh, in my brain. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. It was <laughs> it was uh, the scariest feeling 
probably ever, at least in stripes for me. Um, and it was a two man, it was a two man system. It was a squirt game, uh, maybe novice or something. And the guy I was refereeing with had the same amount of experience as I did, which was zero. It was our first game for both of us. I still remember he had on a yellow helmet because he hadn't got a black helmet yet. Yeah. I had on a pair of uh, blue corduroys, uh, Levi's corduroys as my pants. And uh, at one point, we were both standing on the same side of the, of the ice in the same end zone. And when the whistle went, we both blew the whistle and nobody went and got the puck. We just sort of figured, well, whose job is it to get the puck? Uh, it was, I mean, we were just completely clueless. And uh, But well, I think everybody you. has to kind of go through that to to – to realize that it's not as easy as it looks. And, Absolutely. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. We had a really good debriefing after the game. There was some, fortunately there was somebody there to watch us. And that's something I always harp on is that kids will only get better as referees. If there's somebody there teaching them, you wouldn't throw your kids out on the ice to play hockey and say, well, we're not going to coach them. We're just going to let them figure it out themselves. Yeah. Well, it's the same with the same with refereeing. There's got to be somebody there to take you aside and debrief you after the game and, you know, really pump up the positives and critique you and criticize you, but in a, in a positive way. And, they, you know, to this guy's credit, he did that. And little by little, I got better and better. It's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an evolution. It doesn't take place overnight. Well, Dave, to your credit, you were a quick learner. And by 17, you were a linesman in the old Metropolitan Junior B Hockey League, refereeing midget AAA games. However, you almost hung up your whistle that same year, following a Bantam playoff game at the Lachine Arena when some fans physically attacked you and your partner in the parking lot after the game. What happened from that experience? <laughs> I'm just amazed at all the facts and stats you have. You, you, you don't have my, uh, my plus minus, do you? <laughs> We're yeah. going to get to your height, weight, and plus minus. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I did a midget game. It was Bantam or midget game in um, the city of Lachine, Quebec. And it was three-man system. I was the referee. Uh, there were two linesmen. And the game didn't go all that well. And I'm going to look back on that game. Even at the time, I probably didn't do the best job I'd ever done. I was young and inexperienced, and referees make mistakes. And I certainly had my my share of mistakes that night. But uh, upon leaving the rink, we were um, exiting through the front door, and there was a group of about 15 parents outside, uh, you know, standing together, having a cigarette type of thing. And they saw us coming, and they started shouting insults at us. Um, we didn't answer them. They became more and more agitated, more angry. And then some guy ran up behind me and just suckered me with a punch right in the back of the head, knocking me down. Uh, the linesman I was with, one of them ran to get the car. The other one jumped the guy. He was a much bigger and older guy. So he kind of fought this adult. I was I was 17. Um, he fought them. The other guys were sort of trying to throw sucker punches, kicking us, kicking our equipment bags. Uh, Linesman pulled up with the car, you know, honk, jumped out, opened the doors. We just jumped in the car and sped off. I uh, went to the police station. We pressed charges. Um, nothing ever really came of it. It was tough to identify people. But I called Doug Hayward, who was the guy who mentored me and probably single-handedly got me and eight other Quebecers into the NHL. Uh, his his knowledge of refereeing and his manner of teaching was just incredible. But I, I, I called him and said, I'm done. Uh, I, it's not something I signed up for. Um, yeah, I could have been seriously injured and it's just not worth it. And to, to his credit, he said, I totally understand. Um, I'm going to take you off your games this week, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to call you in a week just to see if you changed your mind. I said, sounds good. So he kept his promise kind of, he called me two nights later and said, so have you changed your mind yet? And, uh, I said, no, uh, I'm done. And then 
he said, listen, uh, you might need more time, but I really see you as being someone that could uh, be special and possibly take this all the way to you know making a pro career out of it. And it'd be a real shame if you gave it up because of some, you know, loser parent that, that action. So I said, give me a day or two. And I called them back the next morning and said, yeah, put me on this, put me on the assignment sheets this, uh, this weekend. And, you know, I just took off from there. It was, well, uh, thank goodness for Doug it was Hayward. Meant to be. Cause well, as he said, it's great. To, I mean, what a scary situation to have a mentor like that. So Doug convinced you, you were good enough to referee in the NHL and that you should take that route instead of playing junior B hockey, or as you say, potentially languishing in hockey. And this was a great piece of advice. After officiating in the QMGH, the Quebec Junior Major Junior Hockey League, at age 21, you were invited to the NHL's referee training program. Five years later, December 22nd, 1990, you made your NHL refereeing debut in Quebec City at the old Colisee when the New Jersey Devils were in town to play the now defunct Quebec Nordiques who are arguably the Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche now. What do you remember about refereeing your first NHL game? It was surreal. I mean, uh, it's funny, going back to those days, as somebody asked me about that last week, um, the dress code, the dress policy we had in the NHL at the time was a suit and tie on game day. And it didn't matter if you were eating breakfast, having lunch, or you were out for a beer after the game, it was suit and tie. The only way guys got around that is sometimes they put a tracksuit on in the morning and say they were going to the gym, whether they were planning on doing it or not. So <laughs> I, I, I can remember driving up from – it was a short drive. You know, I, was, I expected some family and friends to be at the game. It was in Quebec City. Uh, I drove up the night before in a vicious ice and snowstorm. It took me about four hours to get up there. Uh, I got up the next morning and then shadow front and I put my suit and tie on at 9 in the morning. Went down, had breakfast. Um, I think I might have worked out that day. Then I put a suit and tie on again, had lunch. Uh, the linesmen weren't even there yet. Their flights were delayed because of the snowstorm. And we're like, you know, all these thoughts going through my head. I'm going to be out there by myself tonight. Um, had a nap in the afternoon. Uh, phone rang around 4 o'clock. The linesmen just got to the hotel. They said, we'll leave at 5 for the game. Uh, went to the game. And surprisingly, I thought I was going to be very nervous. And I wasn't. I was pretty resigned to the fact that just do what you always do and go out and do the game. Um, I remember skating onto the ice. And I hit the ice the exact same time that the New Jersey Devils hit the ice. And there was just this uproar. The crowd was on its feet. And it's because um, Peter Statsny, who had been traded earlier in the year, it was his first trip back to Quebec as a member of the, of the New Jersey Devils. But it was just funny how the applause started the second I hit the ice. So Tony <laughs> McKegney from the Nordiques skating around, he goes, hey, kid, they must know it's your first game. Yeah, that's uh, nice. So we kind of laughed about it. Um, and then we lined up for the opening face-off. And, you know, lo and behold, Guy Lafleur was playing for the Nordiques. And someone that I'd sort of admired my whole career, uh, my whole childhood uh, as a Montreal Canadian. Here he is on the starting lineup, lining up in the wing with no helmet. And uh, <laughs> at this point, I still wasn't nervous. <laughs> I dropped the puck. I sort of back away. It goes around, lead pass to Lafleur, and he blows by me to his hair flowing in the air. And I just, I almost threw up. I was like, oh, my God, this is real. This is real. And uh, don't screw it up. Um, I and, have to uh, ask. You know, the play what? went for about three or four minutes with no yeah. whistle. And I finally called a penalty. And everyone asks me, who would you call a penalty on? I can't remember. But once I called that penalty, I kind of settled down. And the rest of the game was pretty uneventful. A couple of fights in the third period. But it was, you know, it wasn't my fault. So <laughs> I'm impressed that you uh, remembered you are the referee at that moment. You couldn't. 
keep enjoying Guy as he skated by. I wondered exactly. what the etiquette is for meeting your hero if you're the referee at the time. You couldn't ask him to pose for a photo during the game. Was there any etiquette about meeting him either after or uh, saying hi? No, you know what? Throughout my career, uh, when the NHL first hired me uh, back in uh, 86 when I was a trainee, I'd always wondered, you know, you grew up worshiping the Montreal Canadiens and how, how do you, you know, segregate that from your job? And uh, it actually came quite easily because I worked uh, for probably five years in the minors before I ever did my first NHL game and probably six years before I did my first Montreal Canadiens game. And at that point, the Montreal Canadiens you're refereeing are not the Montreal Canadiens you worshipped as a kid. They're just a, um, a collection of players that you've refereed in the past six years, whether it's in Moose Jaw or Kalamazoo or Portland, Oregon, all walks of life, all different cities, and they've all called your names and, you know, uh, given their opinion on your, your abilities. So then now when you see them wearing the CH, you go, these guys aren't the CH I worship. These guys are the same as every other team I referee. Yeah. Uh, so, and I always made a point in my career that um, I'm here to do a job. Uh, gone are the days of worshiping players. You can respect players. Uh, you can have guys you like. But um, I, I was never an autograph seeker. I never, uh, I just felt that would compromise my um, impartiality if I did. So I waited till, you know, there were events like all-star games where sure you can throw your, throw your jersey in the room and get all the superstars to autograph. And it's a nice keepsake, you know, your kids enjoy sure. it. But, but for the most part, no, I was quite aloof when it came to uh, socializing with players off the ice. Well, quite interestingly, you did get to enjoy your moment back in your hometown of Montreal. We're going to talk about another memorable moment for your career. Your 1,000th game was at the Bell Center, December 20th, 2008, when the hometown Habs beat the Sabres 4-3 in overtime. Before that game, you were honored at center ice with your late mother, your father, wife, and children standing beside you. How was that whole experience? That was um, such a thankful experience. For me, for me, it was... I wanted to get the game over with because there was so much hoopla leading up to it. I had friends and family from out of town coming in. I had to arrange tickets. I had to arrange a, a celebration. And, you know, my wife, Jill, was very instrumental in uh, taking that workload away from me. Uh, she helped a lot. Uh, my kids were young. My daughter, I think, was, um, you know, two years old. Um, but to have my parents and my children and my wife be able to experience that, to be able to be, I mean, a lot of people get to sit against the glass, but very few people get to stand at center ice in a packed bell center and then have the entire crowd applaud you and stand and cheer for you. Um, that's a surreal moment and for it to happen in the bell center. I mean, Montreal, they do celebrations pretty well. They, they are one of the best teams, I think, for uh, center ice red carpet celebrations. And it was, it, it was great. And, uh, once we finally got everybody off the ice and the carpet rolled up, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief and went, it's done. It's done. Let's just do this game now. And Now I can uh, do my job. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was a hell of a hockey game. It was, uh, it was a good game that night. Another memorable moment was you were selected to work the 2002 NHL All-Star Game in Los Angeles, California. There had to be celebrities there. Did you get to meet Snoop, D-O-double-G, Snoop Dogg? I did not. Um, <laughs> what do you remember about the All-Star Game, Dave? What I remember about the All-Star Game, uh, I, I know we had uh, patches on our sleeves from 9-11 uh, that had happened just, uh, you know, uh, six months earlier, I believe, 
2001, and the All-Star Game was in February of 2002. So that was a, still a somber moment on everyone's mind. But much like my thousandth game, um, my kids had my my daughter wasn't born yet, but my two boys um, had the run of the uh, run of the arena. Uh, I can remember doing the skills competition. I remember looking over on the bench, and uh, my youngest son had a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey on. He was sitting with Pat Quinn, and uh, my older son had an Edmonton Oilers jersey, and he was sitting with uh, Tommy Salo, um, sharing a bag of popcorn right 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 on the players' bench. And uh, Tommy Salo was explaining the finer points of how do you defend against the uh, a breakaway, and that to me was the highlight of my All Star experience was seeing my kids. And I, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then, so I had outfitted them all with those uh, the cardboard portable uh, disposable cameras. Yeah. And so they were going around, and you know, at one point I couldn't find them, and one of the locker room attendants said, "Oh, they're in the locker room with Mario." And uh, it went in, and you know, Patrick Roy, Mario Lemieux, uh, all those guys were were in there, and they were Rob Blake, and you know, they had helmets on, they had guys' gloves on, they had hockey sticks, they were shooting pucks at Patrick Roy's pads and everything. It was just. I was so happy for my kids. And that to me was the, what I took away from that all-star experience. That's excellent. Now you, you, Dave had another memorable moment in the first game you worked in Los Angeles. You gave Wayne Gretzky an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for arguing a call. The booze from the Kings fans rained down on you as the great one skated to the penalty box, but an unlikely ally came to support you at that point. Tell us that story. <laughs> Well, I thought that was going to be my first and last game at the uh, Great Western Forum. Uh, my first year in the league full-time, I'd probably, you know, I'd done up, I'd been up and down for three years before that, but I had probably less than 50 games in the NHL at this point. I'd never met Wayne Gretzky, and there was a, um, there was a fight um, between, I, I can't even remember the players, but when it came time to hand out the penalties, Trevor Linden and Wayne Gretzky were both at center ice waiting for the call. And I turned and explained my call and Wayne, uh, disagreed with me, uh, very vociferously and said a few things to me and skated away. And I probably took a little too much from him and I knew it inside, but I didn't do anything. And I looked at Trevor Linden, who was still standing there. And I said, you got anything else? And he looked at me, he just shook his head. He goes, I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're going to take that, you're not going to last in this league. And he skated wow. away. And I went, wow. Like, and I knew he was right. And I, and I knew he was right. And, um, you know, I'll preface this by saying I never knew Wayne Gretzky well, but he's a consummate professional, a consummate gentleman, uh, just a great ambassador for the game. But when you're out in the ice, things get said. And uh, I kind of slunked back into the corner, slunked back into the corner, um, hoping it would all go away and saying, you know, I'm not going to let that happen again. And before the puck was able to even be dropped for the resume play, uh, Wayne got an argument with the linesman in front of the bench about something. So I skated over to see what was going on, and he saw me coming, and he, he said something else to me. And, I mean, I almost threw my shoulder out assessing an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, um, which, by the way, was deserved. Um, and, you know, I think I think Wayne was just testing me, just seeing, like, what – can what can I get away with 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 a rookie and the, you know uh, he was certainly not the first superstar to try that um, so I assessed an unsportsmanlike conduct and as I did the crowd went bananas I mean they started littering the ice with water bottles stuff everywhere I mean it was it was a big deal I'd never experienced anything like this as I'm skating at a penalty bench I'm saying to myself 
please, like, please, I hope he follows me. Because what if I get there and he's like, he's sitting on the bench shaking his head, telling me I'm not coming. Then what am I going to do then? And, you know, back then, a lot of these games weren't on TV. The only television that you got was if something real controversial happened and then it'd be on sports center and everything and i'm saying to myself well this is going to be the lead story on sports center you know i'm gonna yeah. have to throw the great one out of the game <laughs> and and then i'm gonna get fired i mean all these thoughts are going through your head right and uh so but sure enough i mean he just followed me to the penalty box didn't say a word he went in he served his penalty but as they're you know now they got guys out in the ice they got to bring the shovels out to clean the water bottles up off the ice i mean the ice is just littered and i'm standing in the corner going what have i done like this this is something i've never had something like this and kelly rudy skated out of the uh, crease never been the goalie to for the kings goalie for the kings and i'd never spoken to kelly rudy in my life and he walked over skated over to me knew my name which really impressed me he says dave he goes there's going to be worse nights and you're going to get through them all patted me on the ass with his stick he said keep it going and went back to his crease and that meant that that meant so much to me that you know him telling me like don't worry about it don't worry about it. these things happening he was a you know 15 year 20 year veteran at this point and he's like just just carry on man and sure enough Wayne came out of the penalty box and scored the winning goal <laughs> so i mean you know all's well that ends well all's well that ends well that's a great story Davey also worked an outdoor game February 27, 2016. This was the 2016 Coors Light Stadium Series, Detroit Red Wings, Colorado Avalanche. Working an outdoor game, was this memories of childhood pond hockey for you? You know, um, I never really got that excited about the outdoor games. I mean, to me, I just, I was always the kind of guy, I just wanted to go work my games and be done with them. And much like the all-star games and the, you know, the, the milestone games, the 1500, the thousandth game, uh, it's all about your family. And I was excited for my family. They all got to come up. They got to skate on the ice the night before, uh, after the alumni game was, was completed. Um, they had a blast and I was happy for them. And to me, it was just another game until I got out on the ice and we got out there and going back to what I told you earlier, this was middle of February. Uh, the temperature was 68 degrees at puck drop. Mm. My wife and daughter were in sand, were in sandals and in like, mm. uh, you know, shorts. That's middle of February. In fact, we golfed the next day. Um, but I got out there on the ice and to Dan Craig's credit, the, the this ice was as good as any indoor rink I'd skated in for years. The ice was pristine. You looked around and you saw there was, you know, 50, 60,000 fans. And then we had the F-18s fly over at the, on the Anthem. And that's when I went, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And it was great. The game started, um, as the sun was setting and it finished, uh, you know, in darkness. And it was just, it was just a great day all around. It was, weather was perfect. The ice was great. It was a great game. And it was, it was a very memorable experience. Well, you've had lots, and another one that comes to mind is you were part of the officiating crew that represented the NHL at the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. What was this experience like? It was, obviously, you never think you're going to go visit Russia. It's not usually on your uh, vacation <laughs> list. Uh, slightly disappointed I never got to see the real Russia. I never got to see uh, St. Petersburg or Moscow. Uh, what people don't understand about Sochi is it's uh, it's almost tropical. They have uh, palm trees. Uh, it's right in the Black Sea. So this is in February, and I mean we wore T-shirts the entire time. It was um, not what we expected. 
we were very fortunate. We were one of the few people. We were not in the Olympic Village, but we were in the only hotel that was inside the perimeter of the Olympic uh, uh, Olympic Park. So we never had to worry about going in and out through security every day. We just get up from our hotel and wander the grounds and uh, do all that. But um, as far as a Russia experience, it would be almost similar to a Russian saying, I'm going to go visit the U.S. and then flying directly to Anaheim, going to Disneyland, getting back on a plane and going home. You don't really get the full U.S. experience. So uh, we didn't get the full Russian experience. The people were uh, that were in charge of us treated us great. Um, it, was a, it was a fun experience. I only worked three games. We were there 17 days, uh, chartered over as a group, chartered home as a group. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't bring our families or wives the way other Olympics guys did. There were security concerns. Uh, you couldn't just fly your wife or your kids into, into Russia for, for three or four days. So it was, um, it was something that had to be organized. And if your family wanted to come, they were committed to a full 18 days. And, uh, so it was more like a training camp situation. We were just all together, uh, just the guys and we'd eat and we would, um, talk hockey and have a couple of beers after the games. And it was, it was just a lot of fun. It was a lot of group bonding. And I think everyone has great memories from that. I assume there was a rule that you couldn't officiate team Canada games. Was that the case or no, not at all. Well, in fact, uh, the final was refereed by two Canadian referees. Uh, so that wasn't, that used to be the case when it was strictly amateur officials doing it, but the NHLPA, I believe, wanted um, an NHL official on the ice uh, anytime there were NHL players involved. So because of that, um, teams would sort of get together and agree, who are the best officials? Who has worked the best in this tournament? And they picked two Canadians to work the final game. Um, I did a Team Canada game early on in the pool play. So it really, um, that really doesn't uh, have an impact the way it used to back when it was strictly amateur officials representing their country. We weren't representing countries. We were representing the NHL. Absolutely. And how did you handle the transition? I assume you were using IIHF rules. You, of course, were used to NHL rules. How difficult was that transition to get that in your head? Really, uh, really easy. The, the rules are the rules of hockey or the rules of hockey. I mean, the game is played the same way. It's small housekeeping rules um, that, you know, they drill into you. You get the rules two months in advance. You read up on them and you highlight the differences. There was only a handful of differences. And if it was something, if it was a housekeeping thing, there was usually a at least one member on the ice that was an IAHF affiliated official. And they would come over, you discuss it and go, no, this is the ruling. And you'd listen to them because that's the rules they use on a day-to-day basis. But uh, it's not that hard to transition. It's pretty good. And it's a big rink too. So things don't happen quite as, as quickly. Uh, yeah. There's more space. Uh, there's more time to, 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 to sort of think about a call and go, oh, okay, that's, that's the IAHF rule. You have that extra split second, it seems, because the rink is bigger. Now, Dave, in your retirement year of 2018, the All-Star Game was in Tampa, Florida. This seemed like an excellent way to celebrate your final year of refereeing. Was the NHL aware that this was your final year? And uh, this must have been a special occasion to be doing the All-Star Game in that year in Tampa. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and the league was definitely aware. In fact, Stephen Wacom, who is was my boss and is still the director of officials, 
uh, director of officiating. Um, he was the guy who we had some dark years in the early 2000s where we had officials being released when they didn't see it coming. Um, and it wasn't fair in a lot of cases. And to Steve Walkham's credit, he brought in a succession planning um, program to where when an official reaches approximately 50 years of age now, uh, he'll call you up and you go and meet with him. And the two of you together sort of plot your your succession. And uh, in, in my case, uh, we met, I think I was 51, and we talked and we agreed that I'd work four more years. Uh, sorry, I'd work three more years and then it'd be an option year depending on my uh, fitness and my injury level and all that. Uh, it turned out my second year of the of the deal, um, tore my labrum in my hip and missed the entire season. I uh, came back for my third year and I knew my hip wasn't good and I knew the option year really probably wouldn't be on the table, which it wasn't, which was fine. Um, but you're able to leave with dignity. You're able to know that this is my end date. Um, I'm okay with it. You sign off on it and you're able to, you're able to make plans. You're able to say, this is going to be my final year. You're able, they allow you to pick who you work with in your final game. They allow you to pick which arena it's going to be in. Um, it, it's really a nice process. Um, I knew where my final game was going to be probably just after Christmas time. Um, I talked to the guys I was going to pick, let them know they were going to work my final game. And uh, contrary to my thousandth game and my 1500th game where I had a big reception afterwards and everything, my final game was very, very low key. Um, had a suite back at the hotel. Uh, I had the guys I worked with. I had my family. I had one childhood friend and that was about it. We had about nine people. And we just sat around with um, a big old pizza and a couple of beers and just <laughs> just reflected back on the 32 years I spent with the league. And it was it was it was a bittersweet moment for me. Um, really proud of what I accomplished and really sad that it was over. Well, what an amazing career we're talking about. March 29th, 2018 at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. This was your final game, Arizona Coyotes versus the hometown Kings. You retired as the NHL's longest-tenured active NHL referee. A final count, 1,546 NHL regular season games, 83 NHL playoff games, and you were the last one to work seasons in the old one-man referee system. It must be amazing to think today that there was a time when there was just one referee. You know, I think back to some of those games, those one-referee games. I mean, A, I look back and go, I was way over my head. (laughs) But not only that, I mean... Uh, just the chaos, the controlled mayhem that went on back in the nineties, um, probably even before the nineties, but I, you know, my first game wasn't until 1990. Um, you're out there by yourself and stuff's happening everywhere. Um, I don't think the game could be called the way they want it called today. The standard we have hooking, holding it, just one referee couldn't do it. Yeah. And you certainly wouldn't be retiring at 54 years old. You'd be retiring at 45. Yeah. Just the, the amount of skating involved, uh, that's a young man's game. Um, now, with a two-referee system, you've got to be a tremendous backward skater. And I think playing defense all my life as a hockey player, uh, I was a pretty decent backward skater. But that is where you know people talk about, sometimes people give us too much credit. They go, you guys are on the ice for 60 minutes. How do you do it? You know, players get to come off and everything. It's really not – players are going hard every shift. We don't go hard every shift. Uh, for us, it's mentally fatiguing. 
mm-hmm. mentally fatiguing. For players, they can go out there and, and accomplish something, make a big hit, uh, score a goal, stop a goal. Um, for us, it's just we're being worked. We're being worked all night. You got both teams yelling at you. You got um, pressures of trying to get sight lines. You come off that ice after 60 minutes, even between periods. I mean, it's it's complete decompression. You just sometimes put a towel over your head and just close your eyes because it's mentally tough. Before we uh, move on to your post-refereeing career, what have you missed most after you retired from the ice? I miss the pregame, getting to the rink early, um, you know, gearing down into your long johns with a cup of coffee and just talking hockey with the guys. Uh, there's no distractions. There's just four of you in the room and you're stretching. Some guys ride the bike. Uh, I like to ride the bike. Uh, there might be another hockey game on uh, on one of the televisions and just just talking with the guys about hockey. And then when the game's over, it was always fun to just hang out with the guys after the game. And, you know, you some of your best friends. I mean, I, I had guys I worked with, uh, Jay Shares, uh, Mark Wheeler, uh, Pierre Rassico, guys that I'd known known since junior hockey, you worked 30 years with them and you, you were with them when their kids were born. You're with them when they got married. I mean, I miss those. Those are some of your closest friends. And that's, that's what I miss most about the game. And now when I go to games, I don't miss the stress of worrying about it all day and what might happen that night. I, I was never nervous. Once the game started, once I dropped that puck, I felt like I had control, but lying in bed in the afternoon or driving to the rink, there was always that little knot in your stomach thinking about, you know, this game's important, this and that. I don't miss any of that, but I do miss watching guys stand at the red line during the anthem and just that sort of lump in your throat as, you know, the anthem's being sung and you're about to start a game and go to battle. And it was just, I kind of miss that. I miss that adrenaline rush. For sure. I have to ask, how is your hip? And did you have any significant injuries during your career? On ice. Yeah, well, my hip's not not great. Uh, I tend to wear a lot of loafers because tying tie my shoe is a pain. But uh, I still I still play hockey twice a week. Yeah. Uh, certainly not as fast as I used to be. I still I'm able to golf. I mountain bike. Um, so it, it, it my day to day life is not impacted that much by my hip. I'll probably need to do something with it eventually. Uh, probably the worst injury I had. Rick Nash slid into me in Ottawa back in 2009, uh, completely tearing my ACL. Yikes. That was in November. I missed the rest of that season. It was a six-month rehab after they reconstructed my ACL. Other than that, a uh, couple of you know, bad bruises, a couple of strained knees. You miss a week here, miss a week there, but that was really the only major injury was the torn did, ACL, plus the you, season I missed with my hip. Did you do any games without a helmet? What era... Did the I helmets did. come in as mandatory? I, did. I, I, I never worked in an NHL game, but when I started in 86, I worked in the American Hockey League without a helmet for three or four seasons. And uh, I can remember when I was told I had to put a helmet on, uh, they grandfathered in the guys uh, that were ahead of me on contract. And it really ticked me off because, not because I had to wear a helmet, it ticked me off because now people were able to tell who were the veterans and who were the rookies. Yeah. And uh, that really bothered me. So I, I can re- still remember our, our referee equipment back in the late 80s. I mean, we didn't we didn't carry half of what we carry. Now we carry this huge steamer trunk with so much protection and body armor in it. Back then, we had a bag that would fit in the overhead compartment of a plane. 
<laughs> and we would, you know, it was before 9-11, so you'd carry your bag on, and you couldn't even fit your helmet. And they weren't made to fit a helmet because no referees wore it. was a referee bag, but no one wore a helmet. So you had to put your helmet into your garment bag or whatever it was. And one day, uh, my referee's bag showed up on baggage claim, but the garment bag didn't. So I didn't have a helmet. <laughs> and the two teams playing, the home team, I think, was green and the visiting team was white. So I said, well, screw it. I'm not going to wear a helmet. You know, right on. I'm back to where I wanted to be. And I, but I'd been wearing a helmet for six months at this point. And I got out on the ice and I just felt naked. I was like, oh, my God. I'll never do a game again without a helmet. Yeah. And the same kind of feeling happened with visors. Um, they grandfathered me in. I didn't have to wear a visor for a number of years, whereas new guys had to wear a visor. And that sort of made them look like they're rookies and the, the veterans didn't have visors. And then when they mandated visors for everybody, they said, no more grandfathering. Everybody's got to wear a visor. I wasn't too happy about it. But my wife, my wife was ecstatic because yeah. we fought about that for years. She's like, why don't you put a visor on? Are you vain? And I'm like, it's not vanity. It's just I feel that it, the visor uh, presented a barrier when you're having conversations with coaches or captains. And for that reason, I just I'd never worn one. I didn't want one. And when I was forced to put one on, it, it created some harmony at home. But the funny thing is, in my very first game, on that very first face-off, the puck went back to the point, and they had a set play where they'd try and ice it and beat the puck down there, hit a guy's stick, and it hit me right between the eyes. Uh, you know, 80-mile-an-hour shot with the puck, and it just bounced off my visor. And I shook my head. I go, what are the, what are the odds? Yeah. It's amazing when you look back, as you say, once you got adjusted to it, you must say, how did I ever do it before without a visor, without a helmet? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think back on that. Let's talk about your post-refereeing career in October 2021, hot on the heels of uh, Channel TNT hiring retired ref Don Kaharski. ESPN announced that you would be joining their broadcast team as a rules analyst. How did this come about trading your skates for a microphone? Well, when I retired in 2018, I expressed an interest to supervise, to mentor the younger officials. Uh, they took me up on it. I was working uh, semi-full-time, full-time, part-time, you might call it, um, in the American Hockey League. I did a few NHL games as well, but primarily focused on the NHL's contracted referees that are in the minors. I would go around and uh, evaluate them, mentor them, coach them. And then COVID hit, and because of the, you know, um, monetary losses the league was going through all non-essential guys kind of got furloughed um and i wasn't a, on a full-time deal i was sort of a part-time supervisor so i got furloughed for two years i started doing mortgages working with a buddy of mine and, uh learned the mortgage business and then in august of this past summer 21 uh they called me back and said we'd love to have you back as a supervisor uh, you were a valuable part of this team, and would you consider coming back? I said, yeah, for sure. I can do both. Um, you know, it's about 10 days travel a month. And all set to do that. And then around September 1st, I got a call from ESPN uh, just out of the blue. said, your name was uh, submitted to us. Do you have any interest? And I'm like, yeah, I got interest. <laughs> and we had uh, a series of conversations. And you know, lo and behold, I'm on the TV explaining rules. It was a pretty uh, quick, pretty steep learning curve for me. Um, I felt I struggled at first, but as the season went on, I, I mean, I still have a lot to learn. You don't certainly learn it in one year. In fact, you probably never learn it. You keep learning as you, as you do it. But 
I felt I got more comfortable as the season wore on. I had a lot of help, a lot of mentors at ESPN that would give me some real sound advice, whether it was uh, the production team or even even the talent, some of the broadcasters just they were there for me the whole time. And I really, I can't tell you how much I appreciated their wisdom and help. Well, on this podcast, we love to see how the sausage gets made going behind the scenes. Tell us about a daily uh, job at ESPN. Are you working from home? Are you from a studio? How would it work when season resumes? Well, they came into my home office and they installed, um, you know, a sound box, a camera, a couple of monitors, some TV lights, a backdrop. So my commute's pretty my commute commute is pretty short. You know, it's from the kitchen with a cup of coffee into the office. Uh, do my hair, a little bit of makeup, uh, jacket and tie, and I can wear shorts and flip flops uh, down below. The old Chris and, Berman trick. Yeah, exactly. Um, normally, the producer will check in with me in the morning, just say, "Hey, we got you." Uh, and the first games, uh, typically you do two games in a night. It was Tuesday, Thursday, or Tuesday, Friday. Um, first games, East Coast games. So 7 o'clock starts, 5 o'clock start for me. And usually the producer would say, hey, let's check in an hour and a half before. So my, my day would start around 3.30 in the afternoon. I would just, uh, I would check in, make sure the camera was working, make sure the audio was working. Uh, they'd say, great. It was a five-minute process. I'd go shower, get dressed. And I'd be back in front of the camera about half an hour before puck drop. Check in with the talent, uh, play-by-play guy, color guy, make sure our mics were working. And then uh, just a matter of watching the game, making notes, and being ready. Because unlike, you know, unlike this podcast today, I have no idea what time I'm going on. It's, they might use me five times in a night or I might go two games without being used once. And that's like, uh, you know, I compare it to being like a, um, a relief pitcher. You yeah. just never know. You never. You got to be ready. And so you, you got to be ready. You get. You get one chance. I mean, um, <laughs> so you literally watch two games. Would that be how many nights a week? Uh, typically, I was doing two nights a week, and my favorites were when they were back-to-back games. But there were several times where the games would overlap. So you'd, it would be a East Coast game and maybe a Central Time Zone game. So you'd do the first period by by yourself, and then the puck would drop in the first period, say in Chicago, and the second period in New York. So I have two games going at once. And as long as the producers knew that I was doing two games at once, it was, it was fine. And yeah. they would adapt and they would, they, if something would happen, they would, they had the ability to see me. If I'm speaking, I'm being, you know, very demonstrative. They know I'm talking to the other producer. If yeah. I'm just sitting there silently. They come in my ear and I go, give me a thumbs up if you're ready. I just give them a thumbs up and they come to me. And Dave, what's your access to what you're seeing? Are you seeing what I, as a viewer at home, am seeing? Or do you see a different uh, video of the play that you're talking about? I'm watching what you're watching at home, albeit probably about 25 seconds before you see it. There's a, there's a certain delay. I do have access to other angles. And that's just a, a, me hitting my talk back button to the producer saying, show me another angle on this real quick. And he brings it up. I mean, they are... They're so fast. They're so good at what they do. And uh, I have pretty much everything I need available to me. It takes a second every now and then, but the the um, on-air talent knows what I'm going through. They can hear what I'm asking for. So they're able to talk until I'm ready to come in. And they do their best to put me in a spot to succeed. And what's been the response from your former colleagues? I think I think you know where I'm heading with this. 
former players have had difficulty being analysts and being on TV in the way they're perceived as critiquing or criticizing play. How have you found you're basically being asked to give an expert opinion on a rules interpretation, and then you say that was a good call, that was a bad call. How have you handled that with respect to your former colleagues maybe being the ones that you're judging? Right, and that was certainly my concern when I took the job. And it was something I, I talked with my bosses at ESPN about. And um, Mark Gross, who was my my boss, uh, just a, a, a great person, I explained to him my concerns and how, what would I need to do in, in that role. And he said, first and foremost, your job is to explain the rule and then to explain the criteria of what the situation room and the referees will be looking for on review. And to inform the viewer, make the viewer more knowledgeable on the game and what the rule book says. He goes, we don't need you to beat up on the officials. If the play-by-play guys, if the color analysts don't like the call, they have the platform to say they disagree with the call. But we want you to we want you to educate the viewers. We want them to know what the rule is. And then ultimately, I mean, for me, there's very few times where the officials on the ice make a black and white mistake. It's all about judgment. Mm-hmm. And you can pretty much justify anything. And when I when I do explain a rule, let's say a goaltender interference call, I'll first explain the rule. I'll explain what they're looking for in Toronto as they're watching this tape. And then I might say, in my opinion, if I was on the ice, I would support this call or, or I would overrule this call. But ultimately, there's going to be one or two people in Toronto tonight making this call. And it's a judgment call. It's not like an offside to where you say, yeah, they can, you know, pixelate this thing and, and look at it and make a definitive call, whether it was on the blue line or not, it's always going to be a judgment call. Yep. And we're still at the mercy of a human making this judgment call, whether it's the official on the ice, whether it's the situation room in Toronto. And I let the viewer know that I go, this is what I might've called, which doesn't mean my judgment's better or supersedes the judgment in Toronto. And that's I sort wondered- of where we go from there. You know, it's interesting to me. I would. I wonder how you contrast your current job on air versus, as you mentioned, when you talk about Toronto, you're talking about the Situation Room, the War Room in Toronto. This is where the NHL is reviewing all these things. I guess another job opportunity for you would have been in that War Room, but not on TV. Uh, yeah. How did you choose between the two? Or I, I guess what I'm asking is, you enjoy being on TV and, and, and what comes with that as opposed to doing it in a, in a locked room where no one sees you or hears from you? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, being on TV, uh, you do have an ego and you hate being wrong. But at least when I'm wrong, I don't affect the game. Yeah. Whereas the pressure is on the guys in Toronto. The the pressure's on them to get it right. Because if they get it wrong, that affects the game. And I know I know pretty much every one of them in that war room. I've I've worked with pretty much every one of them for thirty years, refereed a lot of them when they were on the ice. And I know they're men of integrity. And it really bothers me when I, uh, especially on Twitter, when people think that the guys in Toronto are flipping a coin or they want they want to see one team win or another team win. It couldn't be further from the truth. And I know I know people won't believe me because they, ha- they people love conspiracy theories. But those men in Toronto in that situation room, uh, Colin Campbell, Mike Murphy, uh, there's, always a, there's always an ex-official who's a supervisor in that room every night. And then you have um, you have someone watching every single game. If there's ten games, there'll be ten 
uh, loggers. They call them loggers in the room, and they log everything that goes on in that game. And if there's a call to be made, ultimately someone has to be the guy in the room making the call. But there's a lot of input, and they want nothing but to get that call right. And and they struggle. They struggle with with calls and perception of the calls because they just want to be fair. Mm-hmm. And and it hurts me when I see people think that the guys in Toronto don't care or they try and, you know, uh, there's a conspiracy theory going on. There really isn't. They, they do. They have so much pride and just want to get things right. And the same applies for the uh, player safety. George Paros, uh, Damien Echeverria. Uh, those guys are the same way. They want to get the call right. They want to do what's fair for the game. And there's no... There's no ego or prejudice going on there. It's just just hard work, and no one's going to always agree with you. But you know, good on them for doing a thankless job. Well, now that you're on TV, Dave, I have to ask: Do you get fan mail? <laughs> well, if you mean uh, insults on Twitter, yes, <laughs> yes I do a lot. <laughs> uh, how do you how do you handle that? Well, I I decided early on, and I think we touched on social media. It's all new to me. But I touched early on, I'm not going to engage trolls. Um, if someone has a legitimate question, I welcome discourse. I welcome dissenting views. If they're being sincere and asking me a question or they disagree with one of my calls, uh, I've had people tell me I have a lot of patience because I'll go back and forth at 20 tweets with the same person. But it's all respectful, and I have, mm. no, issue, I have no issue with that whatsoever. The ones that troll me, I just... I won't block anyone because that just gives them the satisfaction. I just ignore them. Uh, I, I remember being told a long time ago, treat disrespect with respect. And to some degree, I just try and I try and maintain that because if I devolve into a uh, insult laden back and forth, it's just, it just makes me look bad. It doesn't, it doesn't fall on them. It just falls on me. It is not a battle that you'll win. I, I wonder if Dave, if you're willing to tell us, from your career on the ice, the meanest thing, or maybe the funniest thing that was said about you or to you? <laughs> well, most of them I can't share uh, <laughs> to, to the public. Uh, I've said this somewhere. It was, it's, it's a funny one. There's a centerman named Peter Duras who played in the minors, and then he was playing for the Boston Bruins, and we always got along pretty well. And there was a uh, game in Boston Garden early in my career, probably my first year in the league, and this rookie came up, and uh, his very first shift at a game, he crossed over the blue line, like a foot inside, hit this snapshot, and went off the crossbar, down into the net. The goalie never even reacted. Like, the goalie mm. looked like a, a tool, but it was just a fantastic shot. So we line up at center ice, and Peter Duras standing there, and I turned to Peter Duras, and sarcastically, I went, what a goal. I go, it reminds me of me when I was a kid playing hockey. And without missing a beat, Peter looks at me and goes, oh, you were a goaltender? <laughs> So uh, that's kind of a lighthearted back and forth uh, things. Uh, there, there are a lot of things said to you in the heat of the action. And a lot of players will say things and come over to you later and apologize for what they said. Mm. Um, I really, not someone that ever held grudges. Um, not saying I wouldn't have it out with a player. We, there are many times I would get in a heated argument with a player, uh, possibly resulting in an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. And I'd be the first guy the next period skating around to, Go up to the guy and go, hey, are we good? Because I'm good with you. Mm. I've got a short memory. And they'd kind of look at you surprised. I'd be, no, seriously, man, I'm good. 
Like, can we just get this over with and end it? And he's like, yeah, sure. appreciate it. And then we'd be fine because holding a grudge is uh, only going to come back to hurt you and not the player. It's, it's going to make you look bad. Leave it on the ice. And like you say, it's all about respect. Dave, I want to ask the weirdest place you've been recognized, either as an NHL referee or as an ESPN personality. Wow. Ah, Anyone come up to you in an airport and say, hey, I know you? No, um, not really. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll be speaking to people in airports and just, you know, as the conversation drags on, I'll say, you know, what I did or, or whatever. And they'll say, I'll remember you. You were number eight. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. But I think... <laughs> I think when they took the names off the sweaters and put helmets and, and then uh, more so even visors on, on us, uh, you don't re- you don't have the same recognizability as, as the guy, old guys did, you know, back in the day. Yeah. And and uh, I'll, I'll take away the ice, away your career on the ice in terms of celebrities there. Who's the biggest celebrity non-hockey that you've come across in all your years? Maybe it was at an all-star game or somewhere else. Oh, I wish you would have asked me this beforehand and I would have thought about it. Uh, <laughs> celebrities. I'm not much of a celebrity. I'm, I'm really into music. Yeah. Um, Who do you like? Do you go to concerts? Really, I, yeah, I love to go to concerts. And I'm not the kind of guy that goes to uh, stadiums and arenas. I like to find a, you know, a club in lower west, east side of New York City and maybe be 500 people in there and you go see singer songwriter, go see Steve Earle or somebody. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not really, I'm not really big on um, chasing celebrities. I'm a big NASCAR fan, which surprises a lot of people. Yeah. And that's only because we had a team here in Denver with the furniture road team and I got to know the operation staff. I'd go to a lot of races. So, I mean, I've met a couple of drivers, you know, Jeff Gordon, Kevin Harvick, um, big sports fans. I mean, guys like that, I enjoy I enjoy meeting, but uh, not really. I guess you go back in hockey. I mean, meeting Rocket Richard back yeah. in the 2002 All Star game. Um, you know, play, play and, people like that. People part of the game. You know, Glenn Hall, Johnny Bauer, um, Jean Beliveau. I had the opportunity to meet him um, in the finals. I traveled this year, um, sat with Phil Esposito, and we talked about it all the time, which is which is great because. Phil despised me when I was refereeing. Uh, and he, you know, he wasn't wrong a lot of times. I was early in my career. Uh, I might have messed up a few of the Tampa games, and he'd get furious with me. But it was it was so much fun um, sitting down with Phil and just reminiscing and talking. I mean, what a prince. And uh, he had some great stories. It was, it was fun this last spring. Well, you've been great with your time. And as we wrap up, I want to ask you, Dave, how often do you get back to Canada? Do you still have family in Montreal? I do. My father just turned 90 in April. Awesome. Um, still, uh, he's, he's still pretty, he's still pretty healthy. Um, you know, it doesn't move quite as well as he did. Still drives his car and still goes out and buys groceries and things. Um, he's in, he's in good, good shape. So I try and get back and see him a couple of times a year. It was tough during COVID. You know, I went about a year and a half where I never saw him. Uh, ESPN was great. They, they arranged some trips for me in conjunction with the Bristol studios to get up and see my dad. And, um, I think I'm going to get to see him again in a month or two. So I do get back to Montreal, play golf with some of my buddies and it's always too short, always too short, but it's fun (laughs) to be back there. Well, it would be remiss of us not to ask because we are the Toronto legends podcast. 
as a broadcaster, as an NHL insider, what is your opinion on the 2022-23 Toronto Maple Leafs? Are they on track to break the 55-year championship drought? And maybe, let's take some baby steps, maybe breaking the 18-year drought on getting through the first round. The goalies have been replaced. What's your thoughts on uh, the Leafs coming up? Well, it's funny because for 32 years as a referee, nobody ever thought I knew anything about hockey. So to be asked that question now is kind of funny. Uh, I love the team they had in the playoffs. And, you know, Tampa went to the finals. Uh, the Leafs were one goal away from beating Tampa. Yep. I don't think they really need to do anything different. Uh, look at Colorado. Look at the team they've had for the last four years. And they got beat out in the first round and the second round year after year when they, you know, the critics had them going all the way to the cup. And it finally clicked. It just, they stuck with it. They stuck with it. They made small adjustments. I think Toronto has a great team. And kudos to anybody who plays there because I know what the pressure's like. Yeah. You've got unrelenting media pressure. You've got the fans' expectations. You've got the, the Stanley Cup drought. Um, it's a tough environment to play in. And if those guys just focus on the what they need to focus on and let the other stuff just drown, drown it out. Um, I think they're close. You need a lot of luck to win the Stanley cup. It's not just about skill and 32 teams. Bounce, yeah. And that puck bounces a certain way. And when you think it's your year and that puck just bounces a certain way and it's your year's done, it's a tough pill to swallow, but I just say stay the course. Uh, I see good things from that team that, Guys, I talk to the referees. I'm still, I'm still in touch with a good, you know, a good number of guys still on the ice, and they all say that Toronto team is is the real deal. Excellent. You've made me feel better. You made our listeners feel better. We're gonna, as we have all these years, we're gonna hope for the best. Dave, as we wrap up, where can we best follow you? Where can we best see you on ESPN going forward? Well, any game that ESPN produces, I'll be on it. Meaning. Uh, the ESPN hockey package is, it, it covers, I believe, every game that's being, you know, being played on any given night. You can find it on ESPN+. Plus. Um, I'm on the games they produce. So when we have our on-air broadcasters, the ESPN broadcasters, ESPN play-by-play guys, color analysts, I'll be there. I'll be the rules analyst. Um, you can also follow me on uh, Twitter. ESPN Ref NHL. I'd be glad to answer anybody's questions. Like I told you earlier, it's a respectful question. I, I would love to answer it. Well, and that's every fabulous. now and then I'll post videos. I'll post calls that are controversial. I'll try to explain them. So it's uh, I see I see my Twitter feed more as a fan experience and a fan education. Um, and I'm there. I'm there. Answer their questions. Excellent. And we're all looking forward to another NHL season. Dave, thank you so much for your time. Wishing you an excellent end of the summer here, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing you on TV. Well, I thank you for the opportunity, and especially not being a Torontonian, it's a real pleasure to be welcomed into that uh, select uh, house of uh, Toronto legends. <laughs> my my uh, my wife is Montreal born, and uh, she is going to be very pleased to hear your episode today. And to the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Dave Jackson, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.
Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.